Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary issues that drive health outcomes. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP. Its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. This is William Selmer for AJHP Voices. Welcome to a special program addressing the pharmacist's role in serving transgender persons. The program is anchored in a pair of AJHP articles on the topic. Before talking with authors of those papers, I will speak with two experts on transgender health care issues for important background on the topic. I am starting with Tari Hahnemann, Director of the Health Equality Project with the Human Rights Campaign Foundation. Tari, thank you for having this conversation with me. I'd like to begin by asking you to give listeners uh, some background on the Human Rights Campaign and the Human Rights Campaign Foundation. Sure. The Human Rights Campaign is the nation's largest LGBTQ civil rights organization, so we're working to improve the lives of LGBTQ folks around the country and increasingly around the globe. And, you know, much of our work at HRC is, is kind of focused on federal and state policy advocacy. But we also have the Human Rights Campaign Foundation, which is our educational arm. And the foundation works to improve the lives of people by increasing understanding and encouraging the adoption of best policies and practices, LGBTQ inclusive practices and policies in places that impact people's everyday lives. So the institutions of daily living, so where people work, where they go to school, where they receive their health care, and where they worship. Those kinds of places are where we're working to um, make changes in policies and practices. Well, as I understand it, your work focuses broadly on health issues for LGBTQ individuals. Uh, what are some of the most common types of discrimination in healthcare experienced by LGBTQ persons? Most of the information we have on this, a lot of the information we have on this comes from um, some of the good data comes from Lambda Legal's 2010 report, which was called uh, When Healthcare Isn't Caring. And that report found that 56% of LGB and 70% of transgender individuals had experienced discrimination in healthcare. And that discrimination takes a wide variety of forms, ranging from things such as outright refusals of care healthcare providers refusing to touch somebody or using excessive precautions, providers using harsh or abusive language or sometimes blaming the, the person for their health condition. Visitation denials in hospitals is something that you've heard a lot about. And just general unease with people because of their sexual orientation, with their sexual orientation or their gender identity, unease with same-sex partners. Those kinds of things are, are some of the most common types of discrimination we've seen. Sure. What can you say about any additional particular healthcare issues faced by transgender persons? Well, all the, the discrimination that's faced by LGBT people, like I mentioned, transgender people experience more of it. And one of the problems of this discrimination is that it leads people to either delay or avoid seeking healthcare. So for any of their healthcare needs, not unnecessarily um, transition-related care needs, but obviously when you delay or don't um, get health care, that's going to lead to um, negative health outcomes. In addition, a lot of the health care disparities that are faced by transgender people can be linked to the psychological distress 
that results from the stigma and discrimination that they face as a result of their trans identity. And so this leads to higher rates of depression, suicide attempts, and substance alcohol and tobacco use. The Human Rights Campaign Foundation has published a resource guide for pharmacists and pharmacy staff on providing LGBTQ inclusive care and services. Among other things, this resource advises pharmacists on helping address healthcare disparities experienced by LGBTQ persons. What are some of the most important ways from your perspective that pharmacists can help in this regard? Sure, well, some of the healthcare disparities that I just mentioned, like increased substance abuse, tobacco use, alcohol use, we think that pharmacists can help in those areas either by being a source of referrals to local places in the community, the case of tobacco, you know, uh, recommending cessation counseling as needed or product as needed, helping to make sure that there's going to be no adverse interactions with prescription medications or over-the-counter medications that they may be taking if they also happen to be using alcohol or other drugs or substances. Another area that we think is important is LGBTQ people have less health insurance than their heterosexual counterparts, and transgender people in general are um, even more likely to be uninsured. And so an important role that a pharmacist can play is to help patients identify and access the different prescription assistance programs. Finally, LGBT people report more chronic conditions, so things like asthma and headaches and allergies, so just helping patients manage conditions with either prescriptions or over-the-counter options. These are a lot of the different ways that we found that pharmacists in particular can be very helpful. Well, in this resource guide, I thought that the advice under the heading communication basics seemed really quite good. Could you please summarize uh, those basics for us? Sure. Let me first tell you a little bit about why we put this in there. One of the primary forms of discrimination that's faced by transgender people is misgendering, and that's when somebody uses the wrong name or pronouns for a person. And that's really important because when we use a pronoun that assigns someone a gender with what they do not identify that's different from what they do not identify, that really kind of serves to invalidate them as a person and helps undermine their transition. It decreases trust, all of those kind of negative things that you don't want to be doing as a healthcare provider. Our communications basics in the guide are really just some tips and tools to help pharmacists avoid misgendering someone. Um, they include things like, first of all, never making assumptions about gender identity based on how a person looks or sounds or their, even their name only using gender pronouns if you are absolutely sure about a person's gender identity and the pronouns that they use. Otherwise, stick to gender neutral language or don't use pronouns. And, you know, recognizing that in some cases transgender people are going to have insurance on identification documents that are different from their current name and gender identity. So just taking extra caution to make sure you know the name and pronoun they use maybe even including it in your forms or your online intake system. Those are the things that are really important to help with avoid misgendering in communication. And then, you know, really important is if you make a mistake, just apologizing and moving on. A simple apology can really go a long way. Next, I'm speaking with Dr. Asa Radix. 
who has written an AJHB editorial on the pharmacist's role in providing transgender health care. Asa is with the Callan Lord Community Health Center in New York City, where he is a clinician and director of research and development. Asa, in your AJHB editorial, you comment on healthcare disparities among LGBT persons. And would you please summarize that issue briefly for listeners here and also indicate any facets of the issue that particularly affect transgender persons? Okay, Bo, I think that yeah, I should start with the Institute of Medicine report that was published in 2011 that really did talk about so many health disparities affecting the LGBT populations. The main issue is that um, many people face incredibly high rates of stigma and discrimination when trying to access health care. And in addition, you know, medical providers often aren't trained in the unique health issues for the communities. Clients often don't feel comfortable disclosing their sexual orientation or gender identity. And that leads to higher rates of issues like not accessing care when you need it. But there are also particular issues, for example, higher prevalence of smoking in the populations, uh, higher rates of mood disorders. So we see depression, anxiety. And in fact, there was a recent study that showed that transgender people have contemplated suicide in very high rates. As far as other issues, I think that would probably be important for your audience. I mean, high rates of HIV and STIs among gay and bisexual men, higher rates of anal cancer. And I think for transgender people, especially trans women, we definitely see higher rates of HIV and STIs, but also other concerns, for example, effects of hormone therapy among transgender people especially if it's not being prescribed through a medical center or medical practice. Often people might be overutilizing hormones, have a risk of deep vein thrombosis or pulmonary embolism, and so on. Well, Asa, when you read the AJHP article by uh, Jennifer Kokohoba and another by Jessica Conklin about pharmacists serving transgender persons, uh, what points in their writing struck you as especially important? I mean, I think that both articles were extremely important because they brought the issues of transgender medicine right at the forefront for pharmacists. And the article from Jennifer Kokohoba was really a great overview of the main issues affecting trans people. I mean, it described population demographics, terminology. But I think the main thing was really also highlighting disparities, um, you know, higher rates of poverty, mood disorders, smoking and HIV, all the things that I've addressed but also the lack of data on, on health issues faced by trans people, the fact that they appear to be low on funding priorities. Jennifer also identified the key ways that pharmacists can play a greater role through understanding the hormone care protocols for affirmation care, also cultural competency, that pharmacists really need to make sure that their spaces are welcoming, and some you know key points around using correct pronouns and names that will help facilitate uh, access to care. The second article also I thought was really quite extraordinary. This was the article about uh, establishing practice in New Mexico that was staffed by pharmacist clinicians. And in New York, I don't think we have anything like that. Most transgender health programs are led by either clinicians who are not pharmacists. <laughs> so, you know, there is a little 
barriers to care because there are so few providers who really understand the issues around gender-affirming care. So bringing in another health professional to be able to do this really has the opportunity to expand services. So I thought that was a really interesting model coming out of New Mexico. Well, Asa, as you think about the field of pharmacy as a whole, including pharmacist education and various types of practice sites, what do you see as the most important gaps in this health profession's attempt, uh, I should say, attention to uh, transgender health care? And what should be done to close those gaps, in your view? So I think that the gaps are really the same across the board for all health professionals. From the start, transgender issues are generally not included in training. So definitely in you know in medical schools, in nursing schools, and apparently also in, in schools of pharmacy, trans issues are not included in the curricula. So I think that's one key way to address this. Having it as a, an area that needs to be covered, perhaps uh, adding it as a competency in the standards of the Accreditation Council for Pharmacy Education could really help you know advance transgender health. It's not just information about hormone therapy, but it's also really giving more training on cultural competency so that people understand the best way to approach clients, to address them, to honor their gender identity. I think all of those things really should come in pharmacy training. And I think for those who've already gone through training, should really avail themselves of the you know multiple CME opportunities to get up to speed in working with the, these populations. Finally, let's turn to the two AJHP articles I mentioned in the beginning. Here I'm speaking with Dr. Jennifer Kokohoba, Professor, Department of Clinical Pharmacy, School of Pharmacy, University of California, San Francisco. Her article is on pharmacists caring for transgender persons. And I'm speaking with Dr. Jessica Conklin, Assistant Professor, Pharmacy Practice and Administrative Sciences, College of Pharmacy, University of New Mexico. She is one of the authors of the article entitled, Incorporating a Pharmacist in a Transgender Medical Home, Description of an Innovative Practice. Jennifer, your paper summarizes the healthcare challenges faced by transgender persons and presents a framework for the services of pharmacists who care for such individuals. I'm curious, do you have a clinical practice with your academic position that involves caring for transgender persons? I do. Uh, in my official title, I serve as the clinical pharmacist for our UCSF Women's HIV program. Even though our program doesn't specifically target its services toward transgender persons, I think many people recognize that there's a, a high prevalence rate of HIV amongst transgender women specifically. In our program, they're a small but much-loved section of our patient population, and they constitute about 5% of the patients that we care for. That being said, we do a lot of consultation work and a lot of check-ins with the resources that we're lucky enough to have at UCSF. For example, we have the UCSF Center for Excellence in Transgender Health, and we communicate frequently with those clinicians who are the center of excellence and, and the experts on transgender health for our patients. Jessica, your paper describes the services of a clinic for transgender persons at the University of New Mexico Hospitals. Could you please provide some basic background on the nature of this clinic? Sure. Historically, our clinic has provided care to patients who are infected with HIV. Our directors, however, approximately two years ago saw 
that our clinic was evolving and we needed to expand our clinic to include the care for basically another underserved patient group. With that being said, our directors did have an interest in HIV prevention and health disparities, so that kind of led us down the line of starting a clinic for transgender individuals and gender non-binary individuals as well. So approximately two years ago, we started a strategic plan for expanding our current care to include care for all transgender and gender non-binary patients, specifically, I guess I should say, all adult patients. For about two to three months um, of developing this clinic, we did a lot of the groundwork from starting a new clinic, which included a lot of planning, education of all staff members, not just medical staff members. Something really unique about our clinic is really from the clinic's inception, we wanted to enrich the informed consent model by using clinical pharmacists in unique roles. So we really designed our clinic so that the pharmacist would have an hour appointment with all patients to provide education as far as risks, benefits, dosage forms, and other harm reduction strategies. Well, I'm interested in this term, informed consent care model. Is there anything else you'd like to say about that, just to uh, make sure listeners understand what you mean by that term? Sure. It's definitely um, easy to confuse with other models of care as well as just consenting a patient for something. So informed consent model of care differs slightly from historical or even the WPATH's current standard of care, um, as informed consent really takes the emphasis off of patients being seen by behavioral health providers prior to treatment and puts more of an emphasis on using medical providers to consent patients for the treatment of gender dysphoria. These medical providers using informed consent are definitely um, trained in discussing the risks benefits of treatment, which includes medical and social risks. As a rule state that New Mexico is, and we have very limited medical providers and even less behavioral health providers, we really felt that the informed consent model would better meet the needs of our patients. With that being said, we really do want to honor the spirit of the WPATH standards of care, um, as well as figure out ways to increase autonomy and access to the care process specifically in our state. Something unique about our clinic is we are a patient-centered medical home. So even though we're using the informed consent model, our patients do have access to behavioral health services, and all of our providers, including the pharmacists, are, are trained in triaging these patients for behavioral health concerns during all processes of care, but especially during consent. Jen, uh, in your framework for pharmacist services, you write that one of the foundational elements is education on transgender medicine and drug therapies used by members of the transgender community. Could you give us a few examples of some of the unique considerations in this area? Certainly. I think we know that curricula in the health professions, it's already so densely packed. It's really a challenge for us educators to try to incorporate this type of important information into the teaching. That being what it is, we still have to try. <laughs> for example, the small, but there is an increased risk of thromboembolism with estrogen therapy, which can be enhanced by smoking, per se. Other things such as a selection of the type of hormone therapy, for example, we don't at all use a final estradiol um, and, and feminizing regimens. And even the dosage forms that we select, for example, using an estrogen patch may be slightly lower risk than using oral therapies. These sort of subtleties around pharmacotherapeutics are important pieces of knowledge that healthcare professionals and pharmacists can utilize to improve safety of hormone therapy for transgender persons. Another example might be drug interactions, which are always of concern to us pharmacists. Specifically, I'm thinking of my own patients for our transgender women living with HIV. 
We just have to be very mindful that some of the HIV medicines, such as ritonavir-boosted protease inhibitors, may lower hormone levels, uh, leading to dissatisfaction or incompletely effective hormone therapy for our patients. So we definitely need better studies on this. But even just the awareness around these very unique issues around medication therapy can be a huge help in targeting appropriate dosage, forms, making sure they're not drug interactions and again, improving just efficacy and safety of medication for our transgender patients. It's interesting in your paper, you talk about how uh, this area of therapy really fits in well with the precision medicine concept. Uh, could you elaborate on that point just a little bit? Absolutely. When one often thinks about precision medicine, immediately the mind leaps towards the role of genetics and how genetics works and how we select medication or therapies for certain disease states. Really, the definition of precision medicine, it's much broader than that, and it should include how we approach all kinds of treatment and prevention in the ways that consider each individual person's environment, their lifestyle, and their genetics. And I think this concept is really key to the way we approach the health of transgender persons because as clinicians, our role is to guide that selection of treatments that's both safe and efficacious and allows for a certain individual to express their gender in a way that's consistent with their lifestyle. And to me, that really is consistent with the idea behind precision medicine, making it, again, as safe and efficacious as possible in a way that's consistent with the way someone wants to express themselves um, and their lifestyle. Jessica, I would imagine that a large part of the role for uh, the pharmacist clinician in your practice is educating practitioners in other disciplines on drug therapies for transgender persons. Could you comment on that? Sure. I've definitely found this to be the case. I've found that both providers in our state as well as nationally are requesting more information on drug therapies and how to appropriately use them. Um, one of the biggest barriers to providing this information to providers is that most people really want evidence-based medicine. And in a lot of the care that we provide, there's not large trials to have a strong body of evidence as it seems to be more expert opinion. I will say that as far as drug therapies, the question that I get most from providers is whether or not IM testosterone in our men can be used subcutaneously. I'm curious about access to medicines used by transgender persons, uh, thinking about insurance coverage and issues related to off-label uses, for example. Has this been an issue for your patients? Definitely. I think access to medications is a huge issue for a number of patients, but it seems to be like there's just an extra barrier for our transgender and gender non-binary patients. Our clinic is really lucky that we have an individual in which we've hired to specifically work with prior authorizations and helping us obtain some of these medications. Generally, um, if we're talking about patients who do not have insurance, we are Really lucky that some of our women's therapies are inexpensive as far as oral medications, but if we need to tailor them for any sort of reason, like Jennifer mentioned, it can be quite expensive if insurances aren't covering them. We've had huge barriers in obtaining medications such as our gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonist. Um, it doesn't seem like they're being covered by most insurances for all patients, not just our transgender and gender non-binary patients. 
it seems like a lot of our patients, especially in our men, they have to pay cash prices for their initial testosterone prescriptions um, as they wait the prior authorization process. And it's really interesting that the prior authorizations, well, how time-consuming they are and how often they ask providers to document some unnecessary, potentially harmful medical details. One of the things that really bothers me is one of our prior authorization um, states that there has to be documentation of somebody living as their affirmed gender for greater than a year. This process for prior authorizations is definitely a target for myself and a lot of my colleagues to provide education on why some of those things that are being requested from prior authorizations can actually be dangerous to our patients. Well, Jessica, could you give listeners a sense of how you as the pharmacist clinician in this clinic uh, spends your time? Sure. In my clinic, I definitely feel like I'm a patient resource as well as a provider resource. Once a patient has a diagnosis with gender dysphoria, then I can basically co-manage the patient with the provider. I have to meet with the patient for an initial visit. In this visit, I provide detailed education on feminizing or masculizing hormone therapy. I definitely go into detail about irreversible and reversible physical changes. We discuss the patient's wishes on the degree of masculinizing or feminizing that they desire. Also, I provide education on family planning options and some thought-generating questions that patients may not have thought of. I also provide education on hormone dosage forms, and I often suggest which dosage form may better meet the patient's individual needs. When I'm doing um, follow-up visits, I may be titrating hormone therapy, reviewing laboratory data with the patient, or I may just be working on harm reduction um, techniques, whether it may be working with the patient on smoking cessation or obesity management um, or lipid management, anything like that. It's just pretty expansive on what I'm able to do in the clinic. Well, I'd uh, like both of you to comment on a particular issue. I've, I've been thinking about when transgender persons go to an outpatient pharmacy, community pharmacy for medications and particular issues that are faced by pharmacists in that setting. Jen, could you uh, begin by commenting on that? I think one of the important issues that pharmacy and pharmacy staff have to deal with, which really is not as easy as it sounds, is being culturally competent when addressing transgender persons because small things can have such big damage and the pharmacy is such an important place to link to care to the larger health system that it would really just be terrible to miss that opportunity to engage your transgender persons in the larger healthcare system because we have data to suggest that transgender individuals just don't engage in healthcare and preventative healthcare in a way that can optimize their well-being. Um, another issue I think that our community pharmacists and outpatient pharmacists have to deal with a lot, are, or Jessica mentioned, the challenges that are associated with access to medications and certainly the, the type of information that's required on prior authorizations, making sure we follow through with those and getting our patients the access to the medications they need and want is a challenge in and of itself working around that, those healthcare systems. I mean, it can be as simple as within the last couple of weeks, you know, one of our nurse practitioners was unable to order a certain strength of delestrogen because of a manufacturer shortage. And, and while we can work around that by simply ordering another dosage form of the medication, uh, being able to counsel your fellow healthcare professionals and, and really work around the system again to get the patients the medications they need, those are two important challenges that are right off the bat pharmacists deal with on the front lines. Jessica, is there anything you would add? 
Jennifer said it beautifully. The community pharmacists are valuable medical resources for all patient populations, but especially this patient population. A community pharmacist, they really have a unique set of skills to aid patients. And I think that we just need to really reinforce in these community pharmacists that they have the skills. We just need to show them how to apply them to this certain patient population. For example, being aware of a lot of our women have problems with estrogen patches, you know, to warn patients on that the patches don't stick as well and some techniques that they can do to get the patches to stick well. I mean, we have a lot of the knowledge like that as pharmacists. And I think that we definitely just need to refocus what we already know and how we can really provide affirming care to all patients that we interact with. Otherwise, I think Jennifer said it beautifully, is that we just need to have a good relationship between our community pharmacists and the, the clinical site so that we can make sure that we are getting patients medications in a timely manner. Well, Jessica, your clinic has been in operation now for about two years. Could you comment on sort of the natural evolution of the service during that period? I'm thinking here about, uh, you know, numbers of patients served, uh, the geographic area your patients, uh, your clients come from, that sort of thing. We started out with a clinic in which we were seeing patients in an interprofessional setting once a month. We were being flooded with patient requests, and we had a waiting list of patients that needed to be seen. And so we expanded the services to twice a month and then with our adjunct clinics. So I was able to see patients on days that these interprofessional clinics were not happening in order to either titrate medications or reinforce education, doing some of the things that I previously spoke about. I will say that after the flood of patients that we had, both locally in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but also throughout the surrounding area, we definitely have a huge patient population that have to travel hours in order to get care. And this isn't just transgender patients, but a lot of patients who live on reservations or in really rural New Mexico travel into Albuquerque to get care. So we are seeing a number of patients I would say that initially doing a half day per week, which we were seeing probably 10 patients, our clinic has expanded to seeing over 300 patients, I believe is the number that we are right now. With those 300 patients, I would say that I have seen in some sort of nature, whether hormone education, titration, or just some of the other risk reduction strategies we talked about, I've probably seen say at least 75% of those patients. How would you characterize the future of the clinic? I'm curious if you've got any plans for service enhancements or any particular changes you might want to comment on. I think the major change that we're looking at doing is a lot of the experiences that I've talked about today is really in adult patients. We're really wanting to expand services from only seeing adults to incorporating some adolescents. There's definitely a different role for a pharmacist in the adolescent population than a lot of the stuff that we've discussed today. So lots to learn in the evolution of that. Jen, in your paper, you write that there are boundless, boundless opportunities for pharmacists to conduct research related to caring for transgender individuals. Uh, give us a sense of some of the main issues that call out for research. I think there's so much that we don't understand really about how to optimize treatment for our transgender persons, particularly those on hormones. As a pharmacist, kind of one of the areas of concern that leaps to the forefront for me are drug-drug interactions. There is such a lack of pharmacokinetic studies which help us understand the mechanisms by which those interactions happen and how to optimally dose combinations of hormones with other medications. Having those studies can really help us target therapy in a more individualized manner. 
and really, you know, we have guidelines that are based on good experience on how to dose hormones for our patients, but we don't have a lot of good head-to-head -head studies, comparative studies between formulations. Um, Jessica brought up the, the question about, well, you know, can we give testosterone intramuscularly versus subcutaneously? What works better? What's more convenient for patients? We don't have these types of studies to really, in an evidence way, inform us about the basic biologic and even the behavioral factors which impact how effective hormone therapies and other therapies are for our transgender patients. And for me, these are areas that are rich and ripe for study. Well, in bringing our conversation to a close, I'd like to ask each of you if you've got any parting thoughts for listeners about pharmacist-serving transgender individuals. Jen, would you like to begin, please? Broadly, just my thought is that you know, as a community of pharmacists, just by being more aware of the medication-related issues that are, arise, by taking on that role of serving as an advocate for health, and by engaging in the research that needs to be done, I think the community of pharmacists really stands to have a huge impact on improving the health of transgender persons. It's just, it's time to get involved if, if we're not already. Jessica, what would you add? One of the major things for pharmacists that are currently serving transgender individuals is to teach all, all providers that they are interacting with. Because, like Jennifer said earlier, a lot of the education is not in our curriculum. It's really the responsibility of the pharmacists who are serving this population to really educate people how to really provide gender-affirming care so that we can really make a big difference in this patient population. This has been a special AJHP Voices on Pharmacist Care for Transgender Persons. You've heard Tari Hahnemann with the Human Rights Campaign Foundation, Asa Radix with the Callan Lord Community Health Center in New York City, Jennifer Kokohoba, University of California, San Francisco, and Jessica Conklin, University of New Mexico. For AJHP Voices, this is William Zelmer. Thank you for listening. That concludes this interview. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit www.ajhp.org.